Libertas, Austin was directed here. Sorry. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, was going to read, came across, uh, I guess, a fictitious uh, Peace Corps manual for those who are training to go to South America. Okay? So, you're training to go to South America, you come across this manual about what to do if you come face to face with an anaconda. What to do if you're attacked by an anaconda? Step one is attack, not run. The snake is faster than you are. Step two, lie flat on the ground. Step three, put your arms to your sides, and your legs tight against one another. Step four, no big deal, the snake will begin to climb over your body. Step five, don't panic. Step six, the snake will begin to swallow you from the feet up. Step seven, step six will take a long time, so be patient. Step eight, after a while, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the snake's mouth, and then suddenly sever the snake's head. Step nine, be sure your knife is sharp. Step ten, be sure that you have your knife. Okay, who all wants to go to South America and drink these for? Right. You know, what would you do if you were faced with this real anaconda? You know, would you be willing to just let it swallow you to survive? Let's talk about something that actually actually did happen for a second. Uh, the movie 127 Hours. Some might say, oh, based on a guy, right, based on a guy named Aaron Ralston. You see Aaron, right behind me, he was hiking alone in Blue John Canyon in Wayne County, Utah. And while he was ascending down a canyon, an 800-pound boulder fell and pinned his arm to the cave wall. Now, now he didn't tell anybody about his hiking plans. See, it was it. This was him and, and nobody else around. So he spent five days slowly rationing his water. He had 12 ounces of water, and he had two burritos. And he realized, look, i gotta start, I got to start saving this. He would slowly drink his water, slowly eat his food, and he would try to figure out how he was going to free his arm. You know, for the first time in his life, Aaron is wrestling with the question, what am I going to do to survive? After three days of trying to lift the boulder, break the boulder, he realized, you know, at some point he's going to have to He's going to have to do something a little more drastic. He's going to have to cut off his arm. So he thinks, okay, maybe I can start, I don't have to cut it all off. I can just start in the middle of the forearm. Maybe I can just cut a little bit and the rest of it will break away. But at day five, he starts to realize, you know, it's not going to work out. i got to do something a little more drastic. I'm going to have to cut it off with the elbow. So what he does, when he runs out of food, he runs out of water, he starts scratching his date of birth and his presumed date of death on the cave wall. He records his goodbyes uh, on his phone to his family, and he proceeds to cut off his arm. We know they survived, clearly, because of the story. You know, he cut off his own arm, somehow he climbed out of that canyon, and there was a family that was hiking, they saw him, driven to the hospital, and he survived. That's a miraculous story, uh, and if you see the movie, you know. But you know, as I was thinking about it, it that story begs the question, of what, what would I have done if I was in Aaron's spot, would I have cut off my own arm to survive? I don't know. Would you have cut off your own arm? Now, if you're like me, you don't naturally like stop your day to really ponder that question, life and death scenarios. You know, it's kind of like asking, hey, what would you do if the zombie apocalypse came right now? 
you know, fun to talk about, okay, but, but really we got more pressing, more pressing things going on. We got to test them on. And we got homework. We got to figure out how we're going to ask this girl on the date. We got to figure out what we're going to do this weekend. We got to figure out how are we going to deal with our loneliness, how with this feelings of anxiety that's paralyzing. There's more pressing things that we're thinking about. But what if we're wrong? You know, what if we found out that there actually is something more important, more urgent than all those things? What if, what if we found out that our survival is on the line? You know, that, that our choices that we make today and the choices that we make tomorrow and the next day, they determine whether we're going to live or die eternally. You know, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. Well, we've been in the Gospel of Mark all semester learning about what is it? look like to live life with this King Jesus? Who is he? And what does it look like to live in his kingdom? Now Mark's one of the four Gospels that records the historical true life of Jesus. And Mark is the kind of spokesperson, the author for Peter. So Peter is recounting all of his experiences, his life with Jesus. Now if you've been here for most of this semester, you know uh, that life in Jesus' kingdom is not easy. Not a cakewalk. You can't just kind of show up going, hey, I'm here. You actually have to think, you have to plan, you have to prepare. And the last few weeks, if you've been listening, you've noticed that we've talked about the necessity to survive us hardships. But typically, most of these hardships have been outside of ourselves, out of our control. What do you do if a loved one dies? What do you do if a super busy schedule? What do you do with feelings of depression or sicknesses, things that are just out of our control? Uh, but tonight, Jesus tells us that there's actually another category of hardships that we've got to survive. These are self-inflicted hardships. So we're going to pick up uh, our verse in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to uh, yes, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to turn into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, Jesus is talking mainly about self-inflicted hardships. He's talking about our sin. And he, think, he seems to think the question, what would I do to survive that's not a bad question at all. In fact, it's the exact question we need to ask ourselves. Now, uh, let me say right up front, this is not an easy passage. You know, if this is your very first time at Veritas, welcome. I'm so glad you could join us in such an uplifting, feel-good passage. Um, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't love getting up here and preaching on these passages. It's not like I dream about, who I hope I get Mark 9, 42, 48. Um, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather preach on something else. But, you know, we think the Bible is actually true. We think it's authoritative, all of it. Even the parts that rub us the wrong way, the parts that offend us, the parts that are hard to hear. And this is one of those passages. You know, this is not a passage that comforts the broken. This is a passage that breaks the comfort. So if you're hearing that and going, you know what, this is why I don't go to church, this is why I don't go to campus ministries, it's all, it's preaching about sin and hell, that's all it is. I get it. 
I hear you. If that's you, let's just pretend for the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, that the Bible is actually true, that we need to hear this, and Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. So, according to Jesus, what are we going to do to survive is exactly the right question. And here's why we need to survive. Because we're in danger. We're in danger. Particularly, danger of our sin. Go back to verse 43. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin. You see, the problem isn't mainly out there. There's lots of problems out there, but it's not mainly out there. It's in here. Of course, not everybody believes that. Not everybody believes the problem is not out there. It's in here. You know, lots of people believe the main problem is out there. The main problem is war. The main problem is racism. The main problem is bigotry, chauvinism, cancer, lots of problems. You know, maybe that's you. Maybe it's uh, somebody you know. Maybe it's a friend in your biology class or your philosophy class. Maybe it's a professor. Maybe it's a family member. My wife and I were watching um, recently season one of Bloodline on Netflix. Um, One of the characters, John, he said this about his sister, Meg, concerning uh, the complicated relationship with her brother. This is really interesting. Because my sister is a good person. She takes care of me. She wants everybody to be happy. When our brother came home, that was impossible. There was no way for her to make everyone happy. She was forced to choose sides. That was the worst mistake our sister could have made. Dun, dun, dun. It's not a spoiler, but I promise. Keep going. Maybe it was Meg's decision that started this whole thing. I tried to tell her, but she wouldn't listen to me. Catch this. Still, I can't blame her for what she did. Whatever mistake she made, her heart was in the right place. You know, notice the sentiment about Meg. She's a good person. I can't blame her for what she did. You've heard of this, right? So-and-so's a good person. Of course, they're not perfect, but, you know, their heart's in the right place. You know, if you were listening, I actually heard this in one of the more recent presidential debates. Hillary uh, mentioned about America. America is full of good people. But you see, the main problem is not out there. The main problem is in here. Uh, there's a German novelist, his name is Franz Kafka, and he tells a, a story about a guy named Joseph in his book, The Trial. And so Joseph, normal guy, living his life, and all of a sudden his door gets knocked down by the police. Nobody tells him what the charges are. They take him home off the jail. Sleeps there overnight. The next morning, he asks uh, the, the, the security guard, hey, why am I in prison? Nobody's telling him. He goes from prison cell to prison cell, to court hearing to court hearing. Nobody tells him what he did. And at first he was very offended. He's kind of uh, holding on to his rights. He's saying, this is unjust. Why did you arrest me? But pretty soon, some thoughts start to bubble up from his consciousness. He starts going, well, wait a minute. Maybe it was that way. Maybe it was because I did this. Surely that wouldn't be enough to get me arrested. You know, the book ends. He never finds out why he went to jail. And he ends up spending the rest of his life in prison. Have you been there? I know I have. Have you had these thoughts bubble up from your consciousness? Maybe they plague you, they follow you around. You know, you feel ashamed of what you did with that person last week. You feel ashamed that you went searching on Facebook at 3 a.m. and it turned into something worse. You're wondering if you're getting in trouble for cheating on that test last year. Nobody knows, but you're worried. Maybe you feel guilty about lying your parents 
just this weekend, this is no joke, just this weekend, my parents, uh, my dad came up and we took my oldest daughter, Adeline, to the park and she's playing and we're sitting and chatting and he asked about my mom. He said, how's your mom doing? My parents have been divorced since I was five months old and, um, you know, my mom, she lives in St. Louis in an assisted living community. She has multiple sclerosis, MS, uh, so she has no long-term memories, no short-term memories, excuse me, so she doesn't hardly remember anything. She also has diabetes. And, you know, he asked me, you know, how, how, how are you... Have you visited her? Have you been talking to her? And I said, you know, I haven't seen her in about three or four months. Talked to her about once a week. And he just stopped and he said, it's not good enough. She's your mom. She's sick. You need to spend more time with her. And man, arrow, right to the heart. I felt guilty. I felt ashamed that I hadn't spent more time thinking about my mom. And I think he was right. Slapped me upside the head. What's, what's going on there? Why does everybody... Know what I'm talking about when I say, are you guilty? Are you ashamed? Why do we feel that? If we're all supposed to be good people, if the problem is out there, not here, what's going on? And maybe Jesus was right. Maybe the problem really is in here. hundred years ago, uh, editors of the London Times, uh, they contacted a lot of great writers, a lot of great scholars, and asked them to write responses to the question, what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And they gave, over the course of a few weeks, many of the similar answers that a lot of us would say today. War is the problem. You know, World War I is, uh, was, was going on around that time. Politicians are the problem. Greed is the problem. Lack of education, economic disparity. A guy, Christian author named G.K. Chesterton, he submitted four words. Dear sirs, I am. Dear sirs, I am. I am the main problem. I'm prideful. I'm selfish. I'm greedy. I want what I want. You can't be told otherwise. I hold a grudge. You know, I think one reason why many people think the problem is out there is because we don't know what Jesus means when he talks about sin. You know, sin is not simply a list of just do's and don'ts. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't have sex, don't be greedy, don't gossip. I mean, it for sure is that, but it's much deeper. It's something much more serious. You see, it's an exchange in the deepest part of our hearts. It's when we take something unworthy and we give our entire allegiance to it, our entire lives to it. We build our kingdom around it. Everything revolves on it, whatever it is. We want it, we crave it, we have to have it because we want it, and nobody else can tell us otherwise. A couple chapters before Mark 9, Jesus says this in Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what What from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The problem is not out there. Problems in here. According to Jesus, if we continue down this trajectory, if we continue to indulge, to seek out, to want these things, to sin, we don't struggle against it, we don't fight against it, we don't ask for help, then we're going to arrive at the second danger. That's hell. Now, what do we do with hell? It's found three times in these verses. You know, we live in a culture that scoffs at the idea of hell finds it very offensive. 
You know, our culture has no problem talking about a God of love. It's very PC and okay to talk about God who supports what we want, roots for us, wants the best for us, but it objects strongly to a God who punishes people for their sins, who would hold someone accountable, who would tell them, no, that's not right. And I think in many ways it's true because we collectively decided that such a God does not exist because we don't think that kind of God should exist. Now again, moment of honesty, uh, I don't like talking about hell either. But again, I'm talking about it because Jesus is talking about it. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone in the New Testament. If we're going to have an accurate picture of who Jesus is, we have to listen to what he's saying. He believed that hell is a real, actual place. Now, some of you are probably wondering, how could a guy like Jesus, who's supposed to be the embodiment of love, how could he let a place like this exist? Why would he accept it everywhere? Why would he judge it? I totally get that. I understand the question I asked. I've asked that myself, still do. But you know, those questions, they fail to understand what true love really is. You know what? True love always includes judgment at some point. Always includes wrath at some point. Not just despite their love, but because of their love. I mean, think about it for a second. If you love someone deeply and dearly, and you see someone or something hurting them. Maybe they're hurting themselves. Maybe there's an innocent child. Maybe there's a woman who's being exploited. Maybe there's a person or a group of people being taken advantage of. What is the most loving thing to do? Well, it's to intervene. It's to stop it. It's to take action. It is to judge them. It is to pour out your hopefully righteous wrath on them for the other person's sake. You see, the Bible says God's judgment and wrath is exactly like that. They flow from his love delight of his creation, of his creatures, of us. He hates those things because it's destroying them. Thankfully, Jesus tells us that hell is not a foregone conclusion. He tells us that not everybody's going there. No, instead he tells us everybody has a choice in the matter. Jesus says we can make choices today. It's going to help us survive and return. But here is the million dollar question. How do we do that? Great. I'm all in. we got a problem. There's a danger. I want to survive. What do we do? Well, Jesus tells us. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. So paying attention. Good. Uh, look, he doesn't literally want us to cut off limbs or pluck out eyes. Okay, That's not going to deal with the heart problem. Pirates... They got one eye, right? Most of them, they, they still sin. Okay? It's not a literal admonition. Instead, he's giving us more insight into something he said earlier. Back in chapter 8, Jesus said, If you want to be my disciple, if you want to live in my kingdom, not just for a week, not just for a semester, but for the rest of your life, you need to take up your cross, and you need to follow me. It's a radical statement. The cross is a means of death. It's like saying, take up your deity. Follow me. Take up your electric chair. Take up your lethal injection and follow me. You know, he doesn't pull any punches. He tells us what's ahead. And in this passage, he's using a very striking illustration to magnify just how serious the problem is, how serious sin is, and to move us to make really costly sacrifices that will cut sin out. You see, Jesus believed 
Genesis 4, 7 was true. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you need to rule over it. Its desire is for you, but you need to rule over it. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you keep signing as a pastor at the crossing. Heard us tell the story a couple of years of a guy that came in for counseling, college shooting. They were meeting for a few months, and kind of this thing he would talk about over and over is the struggle with lust. You know, he would get into these cycles where he'd stay up way too late, and he would watch things that he shouldn't, and then he'd feel ashamed and guilty the next day. He'd just talk about it over and over, and finally he just said, look, why don't you cut your table? Seems like that's getting you into trouble. Kind of normal, nothing new there. Guy comes back next week, got a big smile on his face. First thing he shows Keith is literal cable. He literally cut the cable from his TV. Several questions there. Why didn't he just call the cable company? I don't know. Okay? But here's what I do know he got it. He got it. He knew the danger facing him, and he was willing to do whatever it takes. However extreme it was. What about you? What sins do you need to cut out? What kingdoms do you need to destroy? What boulders do you need to cut yourself free of? I may have uh, told this a couple times here, maybe you know this. Uh, my junior year of college, I became a Christian. Uh, I was in a fraternity. I went on uh, the mission trip to Harmony, Jamaica. <laughs> Um, and before that time, I was very much living uh, a party lifestyle. I'd go out all the time, hang out with my fraternity brothers, always down to go to Hot Bows on a Wednesday, Thursday night, whatever night it was. But I came back, and my life was changed, but not too much. For about three or four months, I still had my foot in both worlds. I still I had these new Christian friends that I was hanging out with. I was going to Bear Tops. I just started. And yet, I still had a group of guys who were friends that went out to the bars, friends from the Jamaica team, friends of mine. Fraternity. And there's one guy in particular who I still hung out with. He was my drinking buddy. Um, and one night, one of the biggest regrets I have ever had in, in college, and this was this time I'm back and forth, on my 21st birthday, I took 22 shots. One of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. If I could go back, I would change it in a heartbeat. The next day, the next night, my buddy from the, from the team says, Hey, guys, my fraternity having a party. You want to come over? In my mind, I'm trying to witness to this guy. I'm trying to minister to this guy. And so to keep the relationship there, I thought I had to meet him where he's at. I have to do what he's doing so I can gain a hearing. But I was so reluctant. And so instead of taking the normal 12 packs that I would have a couple months ago, I rationed it. Look, I'll just take a six pack. So I put the six pack in my bag, go to, the, go to the back of the house, and then I get a text. It's from this other group of friends. And they said, hey, we're hanging out. You want to come over? And I literally stopped. I looked up to the sky, and I realized, you know what? This is an important decision. God has given me another way, another opportunity. And so by his grace, his grace alone, I took the six-pack out of the bag, trying to be nice, set it, and then packed the door, and I left. And I went and hung out with, with other friends. That was the moment that changed my life, that God used to change my life. Now, my point in telling that story it's not to shame or make any fraternity guy or sorority girl in this room feel guilty. Absolutely not. Praise God that there are men and women in fraternity and sororities who are fighting to love Jesus. We need that. My point is to show that you know sometimes we need to make a drastic decision to cut sin out of our life. For me, 
In that moment, that was a drastic decision to stop hanging out with my friends from Jamaica, to stop hanging out with my fraternity brothers. Because I was getting dragged down. I wasn't strong enough. Some of you in this room, maybe you really do need to drop out of your fraternity. Might cost a lot of money. Might cost a lot of hanging out some practical nightmares for you or your parents. But you need to. Maybe some of you in this room need to move out of your apartment yesterday. Might be more expensive, might cause nightmares, but maybe you need to do it. Some of you might need to be like that guy who literally cut his cable. Only you don't need to cut your cable, you need to cancel your Netflix subscription. Maybe you watch things that you shouldn't late at night, but maybe you're just spending way too much time, 10 hours on the weekend, just doing nothing but watching shows. Some of you need to cut a guy or a girl out of your life. They are forcing you to compromise your morals. Do things that are moving you away from Jesus. Maybe not explicitly, but a month, two months in, you go, wait a minute, something's changing. Maybe you need to get some people around you to hold you accountable to stop talking with them. Maybe you need to get rid of your Xbox. Maybe you need to stop exercising because you're literally killing yourself. Trying to maintain a certain image. Maybe you need to go to counseling for that evening. Maybe you need to kill that ambition to be the smartest person in your class or the funniest person in your friend group. You make jokes, no big deal, at other people's expense so that you look good about yourself. You need to cut that out. Maybe you need to get off social media. Your kingdom is your profile, the amount of followers you have, the amount of likes you have. Maybe you are judging people. If not writing on their walls, then for sure in your mind and in your heart. Maybe it's time to just cancel it with no date on what you're going to get back. Some of you need to cut out your spiritual and or literal laziness. It's, it's compromising your time with God. Maybe you give your roommate permission to dump a bucket of ice water on you at 8 in the morning if you don't get up. I don't know. Maybe something drastic. If anybody does that, just let me know and video it for me. That would be awesome. You've got to do drastic things, right? <coughs> You get the point. Jesus is calling you. He's calling me. He's calling us to cut out sin at any cost because our lives are on the line. It's the last question. Why? Why should we do any of this? You know, Jesus once told a parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and filled up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Just stop and think for a second. What would it have been like for this man to sell all that he had to buy a field that no one wanted? You know, he's going around trying to sell all of his possessions, his house, his land, his livestock. He's sitting out there on the road. Hey, Joe, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just selling my stuff. Why? You can buy that land over there. Is that the field that everybody knows about that nobody wants? Yeah. Think about what it would look like if you did this. Time to sell your cell phone. Time to sell your car. Time to sell your TV. Time to sell your apartment. That's a fun conversation maybe with some of your parents. Time to sell your education. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? People would think you're crazy. People think you go to counseling. But you know what? They don't see something. They don't see the value of that field. Man knew what he was doing. Hopefully we know what we're doing when we make these sacrifices. 
We know that there's a land that has value that nobody can see. Why should we cut out sin? Why should we make these sacrifices? Why should we be willing to give up our time, our money, our effort, our ambition, our desires? Because there's a better treasure waiting for us. It's right there in the verses. Read it again, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. No question. Why? Because it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes. The Apostle Peter wrote his own books in 1 Peter 1, 4. He describes life this way. He says, this inheritance, this life, this kingdom, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for you. God is guarding it. It's waiting. It's there. But do we see it? Do I see it? Do you see it? You see the life, this kingdom, it's just like that land. Its value is not immediately obvious to you. If we make these sacrifices, it might not seem worth it in the time. You might not see any fruit. It might not get any better in a week, in a month, maybe even a semester. But I tell you what, Jesus said it's true. There's a better life waiting for us. There's a better kingdom outfit. It's better than money. It's better than any job. It's better than sex. It's better than a relationship. It's better than experience. It's better than the respect of our peers. One last story. 2007, a relief pitcher, kind of a guy who's been around a lot of teams, his name's Matt White. He helped his aunt out of kind of a hard situation. She had some health problems. She needed to move. So he bought some land in Massachusetts for $50,000. And he's walking around this land, kind of surveying and trying to figure out, is there a good place for me to, to set up a house, start a house for my hand? And he came across kind of this ledge, huge ledge of all these rocks, and he was curious. So he brought a geologist out, asked him, hey, you know, what is this? And the geologist came back and told him it's one of the most oldest, rarest rocks in the entire world. And it's worth $100 a ton. You know how many tons you have? $24 million. Yeah, 24 million tons. You see, he bought that land for $50,000. On the surface, $50,000 land. But the geologist valued it at close to $2 billion. That land had value that nobody else could see. As the worship team comes back up, let me say one more thing. Jesus is calling us to some hard things in this passage. He knows... Our survival is at stake. He's calling us to hard things because he knows our survival is at stake. The problem is not out there. It's in here. Sin is crouching at the door. It's trying to overwhelm us, trying to kill us. But you know what? By his power, by his grace, we need to cut out sin. And you know what? We can. By his grace, by his power, we can do it. It's going to cost us. But you know what? One day... We made it there. We're going to enter that land. I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't know when that's coming. But you know what? You know the one thing I do know? If you and I make it there, no one is going to regret the sacrifice that we make today to get there. You and I need to cut sin out of our lives. Because of